If you look at uh, Philippians 2, which we're going to look at in a minute, you'll notice that there's this magisterial passage about Jesus' humiliation and exaltation. So that's there. And then there's the word therefore. And then there's a bit there in about how we work it out and what Paul's striving for. And then there are essentially two and a half characters in that last bit that Jan read. So we're going to have a look at that. The magisterial passage, the kind of crunchy bit that makes it work, and then some examples. So if you're wondering where we're going. I thought, oh, what do I call this? I'm pressing it, Jason. Nothing's happened, happening and it is on. Uh, oh, there we go. We're done with that. I thought I'd call it <clears throat> practicing humility. Now there's a challenge. Or a new standard for winning. Because we all like to win. A new standard for winning. And it was interesting because Kieran's preached a couple of sermons. He preached one on the prodigal son from Keller's book, The Prodigal God. And he preached, because he pinches everything, <laughs> and does it really well, which is smart. And then he preached another one on uh, last week on really the, the, the deathly nature of pride. And he picked, picked it from Keller and C.S. Lewis. Unbeknownst to him, or perhaps you, not, uh, not his sermons particularly, but they were the two things, the prodigal son and chapter 8 in the third book of mere Christianity entitled The Great Sin, were the two things that transformed my life. They're why I'm here today. And you know, when I read chapter 8 of the third book of Mere Christianity, entitled The Great Sin, which is about pride, it spoke to me about me. And until then, I had no idea that pride was in any way anything other than utterly sensible. Until this morning, when... My bike riding crew, we like, some of them are all lawyers and barristers and they love words. And, and they'll be riding along and they'll say, what about gentility? You know, riding a bike. Isn't that a beautiful word? They'll say, think, what goes on in their heads? Anyway, hubris, hubris. That's, that's a cool sort of word, isn't it? I just looked it up. It means excessive pride, conceit, or self-confidence. Hubris. Writing on my What do you think of hubris? But interestingly, to the Greeks, it meant, in, in Greek tragedy, excessive pride or defiance towards the gods. That led to nemesis. You know what nemesis is? Your and swallow you. It will be your utter downfall. It, it will end up being your downfall. So isn't that interesting? A new standard of winning. Now there's a challenge. So we we learned last week that the opposite of pride is humility. And Philippians 2, as I said right at the very beginning, begins, if you've, got, if you've got it open, it begins with this magisterial passage 
of um, a description of the humility of the Son, who is, we sang so beautifully this morning, our Christ, our brother, our friend, our saviour. And then there's the word there, therefore, and we get the lamb who was slain, uh, risen, ascended, ruling, reigning, deserving, and every knee bowing and tongue confessing. That's the picture we start with this morning. I've been watching a bit of Netflix and I've been getting into space. The really interesting thing that you've got to really dig on Netflix to find, it's got a radical title, it's called Mars. It's not just a drama, it's also a documentary. And in the documentary part of it, it uses the best astrophysicists, philosophers, scientists, medical people, engineers, space controllers, the bosses of NASA to talk in real terms about what the habitation of Mars might be about. Not so much the technical, almost, well, it talks about, you know, just how fragile humans are and how space wants to kill you all the time and what are the implications of that and what you have to do about that and how you have to cope with that. It talks about the mental challenges. So then it jumps to drama. So this is the crew, and don't they look awesome there? But the guy in the middle who's the commander, he's dead before they land. That's how fragile the human being is. So the woman on your left, the, the Korean woman becomes the commander and 12 years later she's still leading the scientific expedition on Mars because it's quite a hard place to get back from. And the fundamental human needs that we have, everyone needs shelter, everyone needs security, everyone needs to know they have a place. It talks about uh, the inevitability of grief and the impact of grief on people in these sort of situations, particularly living in hostility and hostile environments. It talks about Antarctica and the incredible amount they've learned from inhabitation or habitation of Antarctica. It talks about isolation and lockdown. Well, there's a theme, and how that impacts people psychologically. It talks about how quickly humans tend to lose interest in things and want to move on to the next thing and leave the past behind. It talks about the essential necessity of using stuff wisely and or, or it becomes uneconomical. It talks about science versus profit, the whole economic motive behind things. It talks about how humans impact environments and what the impact of us impacting them, particularly if we impact them with hubris, is. It talks about the politics behind resources, because you wouldn't go to Mars for nothing, you'd be looking for something... Resources, rights, sharing, the law and how it works. It talks about the precarious nature of human fragility if, for example, there are solar flares and even how vulnerable we are. And it talks about the fact that there are always and only ever three ultimate earthly powers. The military, corporations, which is a relatively new power, and believe it or not, the church have been the three major powers. Which one's ruling today? 
I'll let you decide that yourself. But if that's who is predominating today, we're going to be driven by economics. We're going to be driven by profit as the key driver of the system in which we live. And there are going to be challenges and consequences of those decisions. Human activity always threatens global systems, global ecosystems. When we get involved, we have an impact. It's not a judgment, it's just true. Now, here's the conclusion that comes out of Mars. When astronauts go off and away, they're universally blown away by one thing. Earth. Earth. Its beauty and its majesty, but also its fragility and its tenuousness. A thin blue line of atmosphere is what they can see. And the astronauts see, they see it, and they're awed by it. They actually see it with their eyes, the connections between everything. And their conclusion is that if they were to reproduce on Mars the behaviour that they see on Earth, it would be an unmitigated disaster. Do things together, they plead. Don't make it a conflict situation, they plead. Respect sustainability, they plead. When you look at us from space, humility is the word that comes to life. Just one more little space one. Apollo 8. Apollo 8... um, ..circumnavigated the, uh, the moon... We have no idea how dangerous this whole experience, this process was. They went from nothing to something and they'd never done it before. That's what attracted the best young minds from across the world. Apollo 8 was actually supposed to do a dry run of docking a lunar module in Earth's atmosphere and practising that, but the lunar module was so behind production, so far away, that they thought, oh, what will we do? Will we cancel the mission? And they thought, no, let's do this. Let's zoom out there and have a practice run of going around the moon. Now, no one had ever done that before. No one had ever left the Earth's atmosphere before. These were disciplined, hard, brilliant military heads going about this. And there was so much that was not known or prepared for, but their hubris knew no bounds. They were driven because they'd heard that the Russians planned to do this by the end of 1968, and it was the beginning of 1968. They just wanted to beat the, beat the Russians. So they condensed two years of preparation into four months. And the rest is perhaps lucky history. But the astronauts got one big surprise. Their overwhelming sense was not the mission or the moon. Their overwhelming impression was this. And that's the enduring impression. 
We went to the moon, they said, but we really discovered the earth. It was 1968. On earth, there were race riots right across America. On earth, in Vietnam, the American army was just initiating the Tet Offensive. Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated in 1968. Back there. And that picture is taken on Christmas Eve. Looking at the earth, rise pictures in light of these things just breaks your heart. It ought not be. And Jim Lovell, the commander of this mission, said, we are many nations but one world and from here our world has no borders. As they circled into view of the earth for the first time, they announced to NASA, which must always create a bit of a shudder in mission control, that they had a surprise broadcast that they wanted to make. And this is the surprise broadcast. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And then each astronaut read about the sky, then the seas, And the final declaration was, and it was good. It was Christmas Eve, 1968. And in the face of incomprehensible efforts of human intellect, ingenuity, striving, discipline, expense and bravery, it was actually the declaration of humility that has endured throughout the ages from the most brilliant can-do minds. As one mission controller said, it struck the perfect note and in mission control there was hardly a dry eye from men of faith and men of no faith because there were no women in mission control in 1968. We want to win And Paul declares in Philippians 2 God's strategy, Jesus' strategy for winning. Jesus worked really hard and he won by letting go. In your relationship with one another, Philippians 2 verse 5, have the mindset that was in Christ Jesus, the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he 
humbled, allowed himself to be humiliated even by becoming obedient even to death and death on a cross. This is God's path to exaltation. As brilliant people look at human engagement with the planet and each other, they declare, we need to find a new standard of winning. We need to find a new standard of winning. Where, in chapter 2, exaltation is other-focused, not self-focused. Where knees bow, where tongues love the declaration of truth that really is truth, and where glory is given to whom glory is truly due, even Jesus. Where winning is less about getting than giving. That's that first section that wasn't in our readings. Therefore, verse 12, in light of all this, get to work. Get to work doing what? Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it's incredibly important to understand that it's not working for your salvation. You have it. You don't need to work for it because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us all. We work it out. We don't work on it. We work out of what we already have. We have the example. Let your attitude be the same, in verse 5, as that of Christ Jesus, the God who's visited our planet and not only shown us the way, but put the dynamite in us, in the person of his Holy Spirit, to make these things possible. Paul said that. Now, quite a few Christians aren't too sure about Paul. So let's have a look at what Jesus said. What did he say? He said this. He called a crowd to himself, along with the disciples, and said, whoever wants. You see, we play a part in it. We've got to want it. We've got to want what Jesus wants us to want. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up a new economy under the lordship of Jesus. Take up their cross. And we all have things we have to bear. All our crosses are different. And follow Jesus. Hang on to Jesus. That's the challenge. It's interesting because it goes on in verse 35. It says, for whoever wants to save their life. You see, if you want to do it yourself with hubris, you end up losing it. But whoever relinquishes their life for me and the gospel, which of course is the story that carries this message, will ultimately save it. What's the point with hubris of gaining the whole world but destroying it in the process and destroying yourself 
in the process. What's the point? Jesus said. What a task. Now, is it a task? Is it a task for us? You know, how do we do it? I don't see much evidence of success, particularly in the last three years of this. So, as a human being, my inclination is to say, hey, come on, come on, I need some help with this. I need some steps to do this. I need some rules. At least if you give me some rules, I can break them. Because humans are a bit like that when you give them rules. Rules are for breaking. In the Old Testament, we were given a set of rules. Kill the sheep. Put it on the altar. You know, I can do that. We like to have rules. Come on, can I have some steps, please? So I can give myself the tick. So I can work my way there. So you can see how hard I've tried. Tick. And the the thing about it is that it's not about that. Jesus comes and he declares a rule change, a complete rule change. He says, it's not about you. He says, I'll pay the price for you. Receive it. He says, I'll carry the burden for you. Receive it. Hubris says, I'd much rather do it myself, thanks. No, he says, I have to bear it. I have to pay it for you. You have to receive it. That's the way to follow me, to cling to me. He's not about giving us something to do. So however hard we try, we fail, because we would, and we do. He's about picking us up, which is humbling. You know, I'm 50-something years old. I don't want to be carried across the river by someone. I want to do it myself. No, he's about picking us up. He's about putting us on his shoulders He's about carrying us. How humiliating. Let's not talk about humility if you're not prepared to be humiliated. The next verse in Philippians 2 says, For it is God who is at work in you, You see, he wants to do the work and you don't want to let him because you're full of yourself. I know that because I am full of myself. When I read the great sin in mere Christianity, I went, oh God, 
I'm finished. Because I realised for the first time that I can do it by myself is not such a wonderful tray, necessarily. God wants to be at work in you and in me. And he wants to work in your will. What he wants to will, you to will, is to cry out to him, Lord, help me, allow you to carry me. I want to do it by myself. Would you help me to let you carry me? Both to will. You know, we, we read that and we go, I'm going to try harder. No, actually, I've got to relinquish more of myself to be carried by him. And to act. There's the action. To humble yourself to him, like him, even death on a cross. To stop doing it ourselves is like death on a cross, isn't it? It's like death on a cross. I've got to do it myself. So, what does that actually look like? What does it actually look like? Well, this passage gives us an example of what it doesn't look like first doesn't look like this. In verse 14 to 18, it tells us what it doesn't look like. Paul says, this is not what it looks like. And maybe this was functioning in the Philippian church. It was probably certainly functioning in the Roman church where this may have been written. It doesn't look like complaining and arguing. Because you see, those things are the manifestations of independence and therefore critique of those who actually have the authority. And this takes us back, Paul's taking us back to the wandering Israelites in the wilderness who were known for their grumbling and complaining. The most beautiful picture of it is murmuring behind the tent flap. About those who are trying to lead the thing, in this case, particularly Moses. Remembering the good old days, us versus them, if they do it my way. But why? This is the way to be if you want your colony on Mars to fail. That's how it fails. In Daniel uh, chapter 12, it's about the new creation. It's, it's about essentially about the resurrection. And listen to these beautiful words in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. It says, those who are wise will, and you see this in the passage here, will shine. See it in the passage there? Shining like stars, you'll shine like stars. Those who are wise, Daniel says, will shine like the brightness of the heavens. We're back in space, seeing stars against a black background. 
and those who lead many to righteousness, that is right with yourself, right with others and right with God, like the stars forever and ever. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever and ever. That's our task in the world as we humble ourselves before God. So what might it look like as we close? We see three characters. We see Paul, we see Timothy, and we see Epaphroditus. Three characters. Here's Paul. You'll notice that in this passage, Paul's focus for them, for the Philippians, is an upward focus. In verse 17... But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, that's pouring the wine on on the slain animal, (laughs) you know, that bit extra on the sacrifice and service, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, the thing is he's happy to be poured out as long as your faith is on the ascent, is on the, on the rise. So the first thing we see is an upward focus of what this good infection of Jesus Christ looks like. It builds faith, and that's what Paul wants to see in them. Are you a person who loves to see someone's faith built? Well, that's what this person, this person growing in humility looks like. He wants to see other people's faith built. And he also shares his best. He gives Timothy away. He takes his best bit. And for their faith to be built, he'll share, he'll give anything. He'll give away anything. That's what we see in Paul. Then, we see Timothy in verse 20 and 22. He shows genuine concern for others' welfare. It's pretty simple stuff, isn't it? Genuine concern for their welfare. He says everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Everyone looks out for their own interests. My way, I'll be famous. Follow me. Do what I say. But you know, he goes on to say, that Timothy's proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me. So Timothy serves with others' welfare in mind. Just cast your eye around and think, who's like that? These are the characteristics of transformational culture. Not very grand, not huge, but life-changing. And finally, we see Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus was basically the courier He'd carried the letter to the Philippians and then become incredibly unwell and, quote, almost died. But we see in Epaphroditus, he goes out, willingly goes out. He carries the bags. He brings the letter. He does what's needed. He just helps. He 
He's the deacon. So what about us? Well, it is actually much easier to just have to kill a sheep, wouldn't it? You know, like, I just kill the sheep, put it on the altar and do what I like. That would be easier, wouldn't it? The Old Testament way. I asked a friend, a very imperfect friend, I might say, I said, what do you do? How do you actually live this life of humility and service? And he said, well, I need a ritual or I forget. I need a ritual or I forget. He said, it's like I need a recipe book every day. He said, I get up, I sit on the bed and I say, thanks for dying for me today, Jesus. He said, thank you that I'm your son, daughter, and you're my friend. Isn't that a great place to start? They're not sort of all this son, daughter, friend. He said, thanks for giving me unlimited access to the Holy Spirit's presence. Because I'm a bit of a human being, I'll need him today. So he welcomes the filling of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the day. And he says, thanks, Holy Spirit, that you know my today. You know what my today is going to look like. He says, please watch and listen as I go. Because as I go, I tend not to listen. So help me to watch and listen to what's going on because that's probably where you're at work today because you're in everything. And then he says, I just get on and do what I like. I just do it. He says, that means two things. He says, I apologise a lot. And he said, I try and see what does happen in a day and stop and celebrate it in just little ways and say, thanks, Lord. Thanks, Lord. Thanks, Lord. So, whether it's building others up like Paul, whether it's giving what's needed to get the best outcome like Timothy or carrying the bags like Epaphroditus, doing it doesn't mean we have to kill the sheep and strive today, you know? We don't have to do that. Trying. <laughs> Look, I did that. I sacrificed. No, 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 no. What it means is I have to accept that Christ is in me wanting to carry me. It's done and finished, and so I step and I step and I step into the day, into life, into faith. Because that's what by faith is. It's always moving ahead. And if you look at all these things, you look at them. They're all just moving ahead. Paul says, putting the past behind, I strive forward to what lies ahead. Look at them. They're all moving ahead. I move ahead. Look at it. It's moving ahead all the time. And it's accepting that in Christ it is done and finished, so I move ahead. And despite all my efforts, in the beginning God and in the end God, and it is good. So, Lord, bless your people today as they consider um, this passage of Scripture which points us to moving ahead by faith and seeing that it is through your humility that 
eternal hope and resurrection can only come. So as you finish this passage, or halfway through, you nearly finish this passage, you say, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen.